And welcome to a, another edition of Sanctified Reason. Sanctified Reason is a podcast where Dan Dozell and myself, Sonny, them sit at the crossroads of faith and pop culture and talk about the different issues that come our way. And Dan, one of the things that is kind of interesting, I guess, from a, a lifetime churchgoer, uh, someone who's been in a lot of different churches, different denominations, and different uh, pastors preaching different things, is the the balance between law and gospel. Uh, law, meaning the Old Testament, gospel, the New Testament. Been to churches where they pretty much disregard the Old Testament, saying it's old and the New Testament kind of replaces it. And then others, other churches, have been a fine balance, you know, pretty good balance between the two. And and then I've been to some entities where, you know, the law is laid down and there's not a whole lot of gospel. And you see the the Old Testament laws and even some of the traditions of the Old Testament with the strictness of dress codes and hair codes and, you know, things like that. And so anyways, you have an article on the uh, ChristianPost.com called How to Properly Apply Law and Gospel. So I thought maybe that's something that we can kind of just talk about and and go over and see, is there a balance? What should the balance be? And how do we know when to apply, you know, the law, the Old Testament, so to speak, to people? And how do we apply or when do we apply, you know, the gospel? And is there sometimes where a little bit of both are needed? And so I thought maybe that'd be a great jumping off point for us here on this conversation. Yeah, it's definitely something that we find throughout Scripture, Son, and you know, what really got me turned on to the topic, as I mentioned in the article, was when I was working back in 1985 uh, on a summer ministry team here in Omaha, Nebraska. We were working with children and teenagers at the Logan Fontenelle Housing Projects. I was working with a church. And uh, anyway, uh, a buddy and I, we were staying with uh, Pete Freeberg, who was a Lutheran minister living in South Omaha. Pete grew up as the son of uh, missionary parents in Africa. And anyway, Pete gave me a copy of Dr. C.F.W. Walther's Law and Gospel, which is a classic theological text, uh, especially for, uh, I would say, you know, Lutherans, Lutheran theologians in America, but it, it has spread, you know, beyond that just because of how fundamental this topic is uh, in Scripture. Uh, you know, for example, you know, we read in uh, the Gospel of John that the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And as you referenced at the outset, Song, you know, the Old Testament, uh, of course, we we had the law uh, given to God's people uh, through Moses. And then when we come into the New Testament, the gospel is ushered in as Jesus um, introduces uh, the good news as, you know, in his first sermon, he said, repent and believe the good news. And so you've got this transition from law uh, to gospel. But at the same time, you know, Jesus said that he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill fill the law. So in the Ten Commandments, we have what God's will is for his people, um, but we also have in the law uh, a mirror uh, for our soul, because when we look into the law, we see that we are lawbreakers, that we have fallen short of God's holy standard, and so the law convicts us of our sin. Uh, the law points out where we have fallen short, where, we, where we've missed the mark, which really is what, what uh, the word sin means. It's, it's a missing of the mark. It's, it's, it's not living up to God's perfect standard. And no one in the Old Testament lived up to God's perfect 
perfect standard. No one in the New Testament, other than, of course, our Lord, who was sinless, who um, was, was perfect in every way. But, but we who are sinful, um, we, we see our sin uh, when, we, when we turn to the law. In, in fact, in the New Testament, it says that the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ. And, and, and the way it does that is by showing us our need, showing us where we have missed the mark, our creator. Um, but, but then the gospel comes in behind it to say, Hey, you know, yes, that, that, that that's bad news. Um, you know, if, if that's where the story ended, uh, we, we would all be lost. We would all be doomed. What comes in with the good news what only he could do and that was to redeem us uh he he saved us by sending his only son uh, to be uh, our savior to be sacrificed on the cross for our sins and so the good news is that god so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life so you, you you've got the law and the gospel in context other, um, you know, sometimes it's been said, you know, the law presents the bad news, uh, the gospel presents the good news. And one of the purposes of my article, Sean, was to really explore, and this is what Dr. Walther really just brings home so clearly in, in his book, The Proper Distinction Between Law and Gospel, is the full title of his book, which, by the way, I should say, Son, um, it actually was, was um, these, uh, this book, it, it consists of 39 Friday night lectures that Dr. Walther gave to his seminary students. And it was way back in 1884, uh, uh, beginning in the fall of 1884, uh, continuing through the fall of uh, 1885. And what's interesting, I never really thought about this, so I wrote the article, but I was given the book on my 21st birthday in 1985 by uh, Pete Freeberg. And so that really was the 100-year anniversary from Walther's lectures uh, to his students. So picture son if you can you know now um you know a hundred and and uh well uh now what 140 years ago or so um on a friday night okay these seminary students um gathering to hear uh these lectures by dr walther and he by the way was the first president of the lutheran church uh, missouri synod um and uh also um the president there at uh concordia uh, seminary but uh, he 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 delivered the message in a way, son, that it really helped his students then and many since then to understand. Um, and we'll get into that today. I know that that there are certain people who need to hear the law, and there are certain people who need to hear the gospel. And as we talk about that today, I, I hope uh, everyone who listens will 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 start to see some of the things that I started to see through that book, you know, back when I was 21. Um, and many people over the over the decades have have come to see because Walther just kind of lays it out there, and and you really do begin to understand um, why Jesus gave the law to some people and the gospel to others, and really what the law accomplishes through the preaching of the law what the gospel accomplishes uh, when that message is preached and proclaimed. So, yeah, this will be, a, this will be a, a great discussion to have on a very important topic in Scripture. Now, when it comes to vocabulary in the Bible, there's a lot of shun words, sanctification, justification, tribulation, 
transfiguration, incarnation. You get all these words, vocabulary words, and it can be confusing to some people that might not be in the know. Now, you write in the article that, uh, you know, Walter wrote that uh, not all of the doctrines um, are of the foremost or most important uh, or not of the utmost important. So basically the point is, is that the most important doctrine that Walter is talking about is justification. So if you're people that are out there listening and they're, you know, hear all these vocabulary words, you know, sanctification, justification, all this. So what is exactly Walter talking about when he specifically talks about the importance of justification? Well, justification, son, could be thought of this way. Justification is pictured uh, by talking about the foundation of a, of a house. So take a concrete slab. That's a foundation. Um, justification is the foundation by which a person, um, you know, begins to build a Christian life. But you cannot build a Christian life without having the proper foundation and that can only be laid through faith in Jesus. And so a person is justified before God, uh, and that's what justification is, is, is talking about. You're justified before God, not by works, but through faith. That's what we mean by justification through faith. Like I had a uh, professor, Dr. Preuss, at the seminary. In fact, I, you know, I attended the same seminary uh, that I referenced there, uh, that where Walter gave his lectures uh, to Concordia Seminary in St. Louis. It's, I met my wife, Tammy, in St. Louis, and, uh, you know, we've been blessed now with uh, what's almost, you know, going on 33 years of, of marriage and four children, now two grandchildren. Uh, but uh, but that's that's where, where I attended seminary. That's where Walter taught. And that's where many have learned uh, about justification, son, that um, we're, we're not justified by doing things. We're justified by believing things specifically believing in Christ as our Savior. And then sanctification is like the house that's built on top of the foundation. And Jesus is the author of our faith. He's the author of the foundation. He's the one who lays it, the foundation. The Holy Spirit brings us to faith in Christ. Uh, and then Jesus begins to essentially build the house. Uh, and what I mean by that is the good that comes through us as Christians is the result of Jesus being in our life. So he, he, he gets the credit for the, for the foundation. He gets the credit for whatever. And we essentially, if you want to put it this way, we're blame for wherever um, that house, you know, need, needs some more construction or some more repairs because we're still imperfect. Um, we, 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 we still fall short of the mark, but, but God loves us unconditionally. He's with us 24-7, and he's helping us to grow to be more like Christ. So, so to answer your question, Son, just in a nutshell, Justification refers to a person um, having a relationship with God, being accepted by God through faith. Sanctification refers to the Christian life, which is a work in progress. So, so the, the, the concrete slab is done. You don't have to do any more work to it. Um, and when a person accepts Christ as Savior, that concrete slab is, is laid. Um, the Holy Spirit comes to live within them. Jesus comes to dwell within them. And, and the Bible uses terms like saved, redeemed, justified, born again, and forgiven, all to describe a person who is now at peace with God. And God has accepted him. Um, you're in God's family. And then the rest of your life is the life of sanctification, 
where we are, um, by God's grace, uh, seeking to be more like Christ, uh, by saying no to sinful desires, uh, by saying no to temptation. Um, when we fall short of that mark, then that gets in the way of the home improvement project that God's in the process of doing. But, but that's going to be a lifelong thing. You know, there are some people sign when they, uh, you know, they, they, they start to work on their home and, and uh, maybe they, they start to uh, finish their basement, let's say. And, and some people spend years or even decades on it or, or take some other part of the house, uh, maybe even outside the house, maybe with the siding or paint or, um, you know, a new roof and, and there are, you know, new windows. There are all sorts of things that, that homes end up needing to have repaired or maybe have replaced. And, and this is the way then the Christian life also uh, plays out. Um, there will always be areas where um, we can we can grow and, and where the Lord wants to help us um, have that part of our thought life or that part of our speech or that part of our, you know, some behavior in our life, um, you know, may, 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 you know, become more like him. You know, for example, maybe we're, um, you know, giving into a, a pet sin that, we, that we've had in our life. And, and, and by a pet sin, I mean, maybe one that um, has kind of we, 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 we've given into over and over again. And, and, and so the Lord is that's where the Lord is really wanting to work. That, that's like the gaping hole, if you will, in the house. There's like a hole in the side of the house there. And, and the Lord's wanting to repair and, and, uh, and get that all uh, uh, to, to, to the place where, where it, it's, it's complete. And um, so that's the lifelong process. We never reach perfection in this life, actually far from it. But Jesus is always perfect. His grace and forgiveness is perfect. His love within it, within us is perfect. And it's really quite miraculous that, that we as Christians, um, that we are able to see some improvements the way that, that, you know, Christians tend to see improvements, but, but that's all because of the Lord, uh, you know, working in us. So, you know, that, that, those are just a few thoughts about, um, justification and sanctification and, uh, and, and kind of how they relate to one another, one being the concrete, uh, concrete slab, uh, Yeah, Dan, it talks about in Romans 5, verse 1, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I think that verse right there pretty much kind of sums up the whole package together. Um, you know, through faith, we are saved. And then because we have that faith, we are justified. Like you said, that foundation is built. We no longer need to do anything. And then there's that peace with God. You know, we're no longer, I won't say at, at odds or at war with God, but we have that peace with God because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross and because of what he did when he was here on earth. And when you look at the the different examples that are brought up um, with how Jesus approached law and gospel with the different people mm-hmm. that he uh, mm-hmm. that he came across. So right. immediately that comes to mind is, okay, there's that verse in the Bible that says, you know, judge not lest ye be judged. So then how is mm-hmm. like someone like me or anybody else, you know, that's not in the ministry as a professional, you know, just a lay person, a common mm-hmm. person that goes mm-hmm. to church, you know, how is it that mm-hmm. we can then, you know, apply the law to people that might be living outside the law while not being judgmental and getting that criticism yeah. of, of judgment. Cause there are people, cause to me, to me, the example that I like to, mm-hmm. to live by is what Jesus did. Okay. When, when it comes to the church and people in the church and Christians, you know, members of the body mm-hmm. of Christ that claim to be that I tend to be personally mm-hmm. a little bit more judgmental to them 
and I don't know if judgmental is the right word, because we're called because we should know. You know, so we're called to a higher standard. Yeah, yeah. And so if there's people out right. there doing something, I may call them out. If it's a right. you know a religious leader, or whatever, I might you know speak out against yeah. that just because you know that's kind of what Jesus did. But then on the flip side, um, for those that might just be the lay person that's not called to be in ministry or anything, you know, they might be doing something very similar. But yeah, it's more of the the mm-hmm. gray side, like the hey, you know, maybe this is something that you should reconsider um, as a lifestyle pattern. So I mean, it's like so when where's that line, that fine line between you know, laying down the law, presenting the law versus being judgmental? Oh, that's a great question, Son. And, you know, to begin with, let me just take a stab at um, judgmentalism uh, because that one is so misunderstood in our society. You know, our our society, uh, which is not the church, by the way, you know, the the church is uh, the gathering of God's people unbelievers, you know, whenever and wherever you can. But but the church consists of God's people around God's word who are gathering, you know, to celebrate the Lord and, and, and celebrate the Lord's Supper and, and pray together, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but but uh, judgmentalism is when a person looks down on someone else as though their sin is bigger than mine. So um, Christians are guilty of, of being judgmental, as are non-Christians. Whenever they look down on someone else, let's say a, non- a Christian is, you know, looking down on a Christian, think, oh, you know, that's a terrible person, you know, uh, and I, I'm, 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 you know, I'm not like that. I say Christians do that if they look down on anyone, um, be they uh, a fellow Christian or someone else. Whenever we elevate ourselves above someone else and essentially uh, condemn them in our mind as though they're just some almost unredeemable sinner. And, and rather than looking upon them the way Jesus looked upon the lost people, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, um, e- even those who were crucifying him on the cross, when he said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Um, judgmentalism is a kind of a condemning, uh, holier-than-thou, um, you know, you're a bad sinner, um, I'm, I'm either, I'm either the righteous one or I'm, you know, I'm at least better than you. I'm not like you. So we have to always be careful of that. Um, it's not being judgmental to identify sin as long as it's done with compassion and love and, um, and, and gentleness, uh, whenever possible. Now you say, well, wait a minute, Dan. Um, Jesus wasn't very gentle with, with many times of the Pharisees. And, and you're exactly right. He wasn't. Uh, first of all, uh, that was Jesus. So, so God has a righteous anger uh, against sin and especially against hypocrisy uh, that, that will be leveled. Uh, and it's, a very, it's obviously a righteous anger because everything Jesus did and does is righteous. There's nothing sinful in what he did or what he does. But it does point out, Son, the difference that Jesus, the different approach that he took with people. For example, the self-righteous, holier-than-thou Pharisees, Jesus rebuked time and time again. Um, he gave them no gospel because their hearts were not yet ready to receive and cherish um, any gospel nourishment. They, they would not have, have been able to accept it. Um, first, they needed to repent. First, they needed to turn away from their sin and acknowledge their sinfulness, acknowledge their own self-righteousness and their own pride and arrogance and everything else. But most of them refused to do so, and so they never even heard the gospel from Jesus because they weren't ready for it. You know, you 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 don't um, 
you know, you, you really don't apply uh, a medicine until you have um, gotten down to what the issue is, the, the problem, and, 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 and where the sickness is at. Uh, and then you, you're able to do that. But, but for many people, um, you know, those who are unrepentant, let's say, um, they're not ready for the medicine of the gospel. And this is why Jesus' first sermon was repent and believe the good news. Now, it's interesting, son, when Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee, um, when he came to Jesus at night one time in, in what is perhaps about the most famous chapter in the whole Bible, John chapter 3, uh, Jesus uh, approached him, or, you know, I should say dealt with him differently. He didn't rebuke him. He didn't call him out the way he, he called out other uh, Pharisees and religious leaders at times. You know, you whitewashed tombs, he said, uh, you brood of vipers, you know, um, et cetera, et cetera. And, and very harsh rebukes because they were hypocrites. They were pretending to be holy, or I should say claiming to be holy, but, but, but they were anything but. Now, now, Nicodemus in John 3, his heart was in a different place. His heart, he was a seeker. He was open-minded. He wanted to learn the truth about Jesus. You know, is this guy really the Messiah? Uh, but he came with an open heart and, and, and I'm, I think some measure of humility where he didn't claim to have all the answers. He wanted to know the answer, but, but he came to Jesus with an open heart. And so what did the Lord uh, tell him? He told him, you must be born again. That was very clear. And remember, as I said earlier, uh, born again, saved, redeemed, justified, and forgiven. That, that all talks about a person who has entered the family of God through faith in Christ. But then Jesus went on to share what is uh, perhaps the most often quoted uh, Bible verse uh, in history. Uh, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus gave him the gospel because he was ready for the gospel. Um, in, in Acts chapter uh, 16, when, when the jailer was, was, was terrified, um, what, what, did, uh, what did Paul and Silas uh, say when he said, what must I do to be saved? They didn't give him the law. They gave him the gospel. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved because he was ready to receive uh, the good news. On the other hand, what did Jesus tell the rich young ruler, which, by the way, we just looked at this uh, at the Bible study I led last night. We just looked at that rich young ruler who came to Jesus, and, and he asked Jesus the question, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? And he was self-righteous. Um, he, he felt that he was good enough. He felt he could do something good enough to get into heaven, and he probably felt like he already had done it. And so Jesus did not give him the gospel. He wasn't ready for it. And Walter brings this out very, very clearly that, that um, you know, the biblical model is that you give the gospel to those who are, are ready to receive that. You give the law to those who are steeped in self-righteousness uh, or in, in their own pride or their own works righteousness, which often is, is, is you know, pretty much the same thing. Um, so they're, they're assuming their works are going to get them into heaven. And this rich young ruler, uh, when he asked Jesus, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? He received from Jesus the law. And Jesus recited some of the Ten Commandments. And, and, and the goal there, son, was that this rich young ruler would look at that and say, oh, my goodness, uh, I have to do that. I've fallen short. I haven't always obeyed my parents. You know, I, I haven't always obeyed the Ten Commandments. Instead, in his, in his delusion, in his pride, he said to the Lord, all these I have kept since I was. Um, he was not a recipient for the gospel. He obviously had a hard heart. 
Uh, Jesus knew the condition of everyone's heart. And, 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 and so, um, you know, Jesus then proceeded to tell him since he thought he was perfect and he, he, he loved his money. He said, well, go sell everything you have, give it to the poor and then you'll be perfect. You know, which, which was just another way of saying, if you obey all the commandments and give everything away, which of course that, that's, that, that was impossible, but that's the law was intended to bring him to his knees spiritually. But what's interesting, son, is when Jesus gave him that, um, you know, that command about, uh, or at least that, um, uh, instruction about going and selling everything. Um, the man went away sad because, because he had great wealth. So you see, he, he never intended to love Jesus more than his possessions. And, and, and the law was shared with him, but it did not penetrate his works righteousness. Um, so there we see, even when Jesus spoke here to this individual, even then that man with his free will, with his stubborn, self-righteous attitude, he was not converted even by the Son of God. I mean, imagine that man, son, who will stand before the Lord on Judgment Day. Uh, now, we can hope that maybe later in his life, as he reflected on everything, as he came to hopefully learn, you know, uh, about Christ's death and resurrection and what that meant and what it could mean for him. I mean, it would be wonderful if one day we meet that man in heaven and, and we hear his testimony of how, you know, when, when I was privileged to meet Jesus, I was so wrong. I was so cocky. I was so self-righteous. I was so in love with money, you know, and, and, and I hope, Son, that, 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 you know, there was, a, as Paul Harvey used to say, you know, and now you know the rest of the story. Um, I, I hope there is a rest of the story for that young man, uh, b b because um, that sadly is where many in our world find themselves. Um, they're steeped in self-righteousness, works righteousness, loving materialism, and, and, and they need to hear the law. They, they, they need to hear the commandments. They need to be convicted of their sin. They need to be brought to repentance by the Holy Spirit. Um, and then they'll be ready. You know, you, you, you can't taste the sweet until you taste the bitter. Um, you, you, you can't really know the good news um, until you know the bad news. You're not going to want to go to the hospital unless you know you're sick. So this is the, this is the proper distinction between law and gospel that Walter wrote about. But long before Walter arrived on the scene, this is the way Jesus ministered to people. Um, this is the way the apostles went out and ministered. And, and one last example I'll give here, son, is when that woman who was caught in adultery was being condemned by the religious leaders. Uh, by, by the Pharisees, they were ready to stone her. Well, she felt beat down by her sin and by her um, accusers. You know, she was guilty of sin, uh, but, but, but and guilty of adultery. But, but the Lord um, did not give her more law. He did not give her more condemnation. He, he, he said, neither do I um, condemn you. Uh, go and sin no more. So he offered her grace forgiveness. He certainly pointed her on a different path than she was living, which helps us to see never is offered with, with a, a clause like, hey, go and live for sin now, now that you're forgiven. Go give in to sin, deliberately live for sin. You know, hey, you've got your ticket punched for heaven. Go live however you want to live. No. Um, when you receive grace, it changes you and you want to do God's will and you learn very quickly that uh, God's grace is never a license to go out and freely sin, but it is 
it is something that you live under, even when you, you do sin, you, you are, you are forgiven. Yes. Confess your sins to God for sure. But, but you're living under grace. So that if let's say the last thing you do as a Christian before you die is you know, you're out on the highway and, and somebody cuts you off and, and, and maybe you, uh, you do something. And then you die, you know, two seconds later, and you didn't have time to confess that sin to the Lord. Hey, you're under grace. You're under God's grace. No, that doesn't make that, that behavior right or God-pleasing, but neither is it going to send you to hell. Um, you are under God's grace. Um, and, and so it's not a license to sin, but it is a protective covering for us that we have 24-7. And, and, and the longer we live as Christians, the more we realize that God truly does, his grace, as it says in Titus, truly does teach us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. So we're not saved by our works. Um, the, the, the law shows us our sin. And by the way, um, what about all those rules for holy living in the epistles? So, you know, you ask about justification and sanctification, son. You know, look, look at Romans, you know. Um, you know, look at, look at, uh, Ephesians. Okay. Um, look, look at, uh, you know, Colossians. Okay. The, these, um, these epistles that, that were written, uh, you know, by Paul and of course, Peter, Peter wrote some mostly by Paul. Um, these epistles lay out justification in the early chapters, lay out that we've been saved by grace through faith. We've been seated with Christ, as it says in Ephesians, in the heavenly realms. Um, but then in the later chapters, they give Christians rules for holy living. So what's that about? You say, well, that, that's like the law. Well, yes, these are rules for Christians, not rules to be saved. You're already saved. Not rules merely to show you that you're a sin and you need a Savior. No, that's not what those rules are about. Those rules for believers are intended to show us where God wants us to say no where God wants us to say no, you know? So, so, so for example, when, when, when Paul in, in, uh, even in the gospels, uh, uh, you know, in, in John, but also in the epistles, you know, let's say to love one another or, or, or to honor one another above yourself. Um, that's not merely there to show us, Oh, well, I can't do that. I'm a sinner. That's the law. You know, no, that's there to show us how to please the Lord. You and I as fathers and, and, and any parents listening uh, would have done this. Fathers and mothers do this all the time. You have children in your family that you give rules to because it shows them the boundaries. It shows them how you want them to live, how God wants them to live, how you can please the Lord. So the rules for holy living that Christians have in, in the New Testament um, and really throughout Scripture, I mean, because there's so much in the Bible that, that – that, um, we can continue to see as an instruction for a holy life. Um, that is there not to justify us before God. We're already just sanctify us in, in, in that it, it's there to help make us more like Christ. How do I become more like Christ when, when the Bible says, for example, do not judge, you know, in Romans, do not judge. Well, if I say no to my temptation or tendency to judge someone else, then I'm becoming a little bit more like Christ in that area of my life. Because maybe I used to look down on that person, whether they're a Christian or non-Christian. I used to think, oh boy, I'm glad I'm not like, like him or her. I'm better than him or her. And, and, and so when, when by God's grace, I just start saying, no, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm just going to resist that. Um, to, to the extent that we resist it, we become more like Christ. We grow in sanctification. Now, it doesn't make us any more saved. It doesn't make us any more, um, you know, uh, positive that we're going to heaven. 
um, we're already going to heaven. You know, we're already covered by God's grace uh, through the blood that he shed on the cross. Um, even if we doubt that at times, we're still covered. You know, um, the Bible talks about a white robe that covers our soul. Now, God doesn't want us to doubt that. There's no reason to doubt that. But what I'm saying is some people, even who have faith in Christ, um, sometimes they have doubts about, well, you know, I hope I'm going to go to heaven. Uh, D.L. Moody said, faith is the root, assurance is the flower. So it's critical that we have the root. It's critical that we have faith in Christ. Um, and then and then the flower, the assurance will grow as we continue to focus on God's promise um, that, that he who believes and is baptized will be saved, that, that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will, will, will be saved. You know, I, I mentioned there, you know, baptism. People wonder, well, can you be saved without baptism? Well, sure, the thief on the cross was saved without, without baptism. So um, baptism always follows. Um, a, a person, uh, you know, uh, entering into God's family. And, uh, but, but at the end of the day, um, a person is, is born again through faith in Jesus. And, and this is the good news. This is the gospel. Um, and, and this is why the law prepares our hearts on to lead us to Christ. You know, Dan, it's kind of fascinating when you mention the, uh, the adulterer, the woman that they brought to Jesus and how he responds to her. And then, you have the woman at the well and how Jesus interacts with her. And then you have the woman who was trying just to touch the hem of Jesus's coat to be healed and how he responds to her. And everybody, all three of them kind of are, are approaching in different ways. One is, you know, basically forced to stand in front of Jesus. Another one just kind of happenstance, you know, uh, going to go get some water at the well, and Jesus happens to be there. And then one is deliberately trying to seek him out, um, you know, knowing that if I can just touch the hem of his garment, I'm going to be healed. And so no matter which way they are approached, no matter which way they are, you know, put in front of Jesus, whether by force, whether by happenstance, or whether by determination to get there on uh, because of what they believe, the end result is always the same. You know, Jesus was there not to condemn them, but to forgive them, to kind of show them, you know, uh, the truth, and then, uh, you know, take it from there. And so, like, with the, the adulterer, you know, showed her the truth of her lifestyle, but then said, go, you know, no, your, your condemners aren't here. No one's accusing you, so neither do I. Go. And then the woman at the well, you know, he's just talking to a Samaritan, and the Samaritan's like, you know, how can you talk to me? You know, where Jews and Samaritans don't mix. And so he just starts talking to her about her life, and then, you know, she understands that this must be the Messiah. And then the lady who, uh, you know, believed, trying to get to, to touch the hem of Jesus, you know, so the, the approaches have been different. I think that's an example that we can kind of use. No matter what our approach might be, you know, if we do get that um appearance in front of Jesus. And we realize it, you know, unlike the, you know, like the rich young ruler and others, if we realize it and the truth is there and we have open eyes to see it, then it becomes pretty simple to understand what Jesus is about and what he did. And, um, you know, I heard something from Billy Graham one time recently, you know, there's the verse, Jesus says, I behold, I stand at the door and knock. He who opens up, I'll come in with him and dine with him. And the question was raised, why doesn't Jesus just, you know, kind of force everybody. And um, the response was, you know, Jesus just just barge in. He He's not going to get in, in the way of your will. You know, he wants you to come to him, but he's not going to get in the way of your will. And so if we can realize that, you know, Jesus is there, if we want to accept him, 
And how we do it, it's very simple when the, in the grand scheme of things, when you're talking about law, gospel, stuff like that, it really is a little bit of the mix of both, a little bit of law and gospel, but Jesus isn't going to hammer us on the head with the gospel, I mean, with the law aspect of it, nor does he drown us in the insincerity of the gospel. It's like just a real, genuine approach from person to person regarding, you know, whoever he's dealing with, and that's all we have to do. We don't have to approach him in any way other than, approach him as ourselves, because from these examples that we see in the Bible, Jesus meets us right where we're at, meets us right with who we are, and just is quite uh, frank and honest with, with us. And and so for you know people that might be going through whatever, all we have to do is just approach him as who we are, because we don't have to be anything else other than ourselves, because Jesus will meet us right there. Yeah, that that's for sure, Son. And um, I, I guess I didn't really um, say much to your your good question a while ago. That now we're kind of circling back to it as far as you know. How do we as Christians, you know, and let's say not not just you know somebody who's a pastor or so forth or in a sermon, but how do we apply law and gospel in individual situations and uh, with friends or family or whatnot? Um, and it, it really is it, it's the same principle that the person who is um, unrepentant, they really need to hear the law. Um, the person who is contrite and sorry for their sin and, and, and wanting to do the right thing in God's eyes, that person needs to hear the gospel. I think about that verse in James that says, Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. Well, um, part of restoring someone is is not you know sugarcoating uh, the message, not um, you know uh, changing the message, not not saying that something is no longer a sin that's you know clearly a sin in the Bible, but rather it's addressing it as James says there gently, you know, not not um, uh, with, with anger or aggression or hostility or uh, a feeling of superiority or, or anything like that. I'd be uh, judging them. But, but at the same time, um, some people uh, are not yet ready to hear uh, the gospel. I'll, I'll, I'll give you a prime example of this, Son, but, but this, it wouldn't have to just be a pastor. Anybody could do this. So I, I, was, I was counseling a, a couple um, in another state, and um, actually both the husband and the wife, uh, they're both believers, um, both of them, it already filed for divorce, and it, 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 it's a couple I've known for for many years. Um, and and so as I proceeded to provide some thoughts and some counsel, and particularly two lengthy emails where I really spelled out some things, um, there was plenty of law in there about what the Bible. Uh, would say about an unbiblical divorce and, 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 and why it's very dangerous for someone just like it would be dangerous to charge into adultery. Um, it, it would be dangerous to charge into an unbiblical divorce. And in this particular case, there, there were not what I'll call biblical grounds, which, you know, Jesus said other than, um, you know, a desertion or unfaithfulness. I mean, if you cheat on your spouse then then your spouse would have a biblical grounds to divorce. Not, not that they have to get a divorce. I mean, they're Christian, 
marriages and other marriages that have survived that. Um, but, but that, you know, God, you're, you're not sinning if you as a spouse um, file for divorce, if, if your spouse has cheated on you. Um, and of course, if they desert you, then, I mean, that would be grounds for divorce. And really a third one, you know, I mean, if there's physical abuse going on um, in the marriage, then certainly that's not something that um, the Lord would expect you to, uh, to endure and stay in. Um, I mean, so that, that, that would just be totally unacceptable. And, and you're not sinning if you get out of a marriage where you're being abused physically. But, but anyway, uh, but, but there were no grounds for biblical divorce in this particular situation. And, and, and there were just other things that had created, um, you know, some turmoil. And basically what I, what I did is I, I shared a lot about, um, the law and, and why, uh, an unbiblical divorce in that situation would, would be so dangerous and so offensive to the Lord, et cetera, et cetera. Without going into all of that, thankfully, um, God worked through uh, that that message of the law, and and both parties uh, ended up uh, having a, a change of mind, a change of heart, and and actually, uh, you know, recognized that neither one of them wanted to have an unbiblical divorce, and 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 so they were able to um, work through their uh, their conflict, uh, but but they first had to essentially repent. Of, of, of their own choice with their free will to pursue an unbiblical divorce. And, and once they came to recognize son that that was wrong before God, that they had made a lifetime commitment to one another before the Lord. And, and that as it says in the Bible, God hates divorce. Um, that, that they really didn't have the right. In fact, that's one of the things I wrote to them is I, you know, I, I, uh, I put in there, uh, how, you know, their bodies are, are, uh, temples of the Holy Spirit. They don't belong to themselves. And you, you don't have the right. I mean, you, you belong to God. You don't have the right to file. You hear all about rights in America. I have my right. No. As a Christian, you don't have the right to file for an unbiblical divorce. Not to mention, you know, it's going to bring a lot of problems into your life. It's going to be very offensive to God. And it's a very dangerous thing to do because if, if, you, if you charge ahead with that, it's just not a good sign spiritually at all that you're in a good place at all. Uh, with, with, with the Lord, especially once, you know, you're, you're presented with the law. So, so the law has its purpose. And in that particular case, son, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to report that, um, that that couple did have a change of heart uh, and, and decided that reconciliation was, was preferable and, and that, you know, communication on certain things and working through certain things um, was, was far preferable to charging ahead with an unbiblical divorce. So what I did not write to them um, when, I, when I learned about the fact that they both filed for divorce, I did not write to them and say, well, now you both are Christians, and, and so you know God will forgive you, and, uh, you know, uh, I mean, you, you might want to reconsider this, but, but, you know, either way, you know, you're, you're forgiven, you know. I didn't do that. You know, um, because they weren't contrite uh, over their sin. They weren't even aware, maybe, of their sin. They were charging ahead with it. They weren't sorry for what they were doing to God and to one another. Um, so they needed to hear that. And, and Paul even writes about that in Second Corinthians, how he said, hey, you know, in my previous letter, you know, I know some of you were made sorry by what I said, but, hey, uh, I, you know, I, I felt bad for that, but, but, hey, I'm glad I did it because you, you, were, you became sorrowful as God intended um, and that godly sorrow um, that God produced in you, you know, is, is, what, is what leads to uh, repentance and brings about uh, salvation. And, and so sometimes, son, 
we we have to speak the hard truth to someone. Um, I'll give you one more example. Um, last night in the Bible study, um, I had uh, I had Bill share with everyone. He had just been out to a retreat out in uh, upstate New York. He does a lot of um, he, he helps a lot of people online uh, who are going through cancer, particularly colon cancer, which he he came through that and and is cancer free today. And we pray stays cancer free, but he helps a lot of people. And anyway, there's, there's this retreat, this group of people, and they started this thing called a uh, man up to cancer. And so Bill was out there with 120 men there, um, at, at, at this retreat and just a lot of sharing. And, and, you know, he estimated that maybe half were Christians, you know, but it was at a, at a place where they have, um, uh, I think it was in a, in a, in a Christian retreat center, you know, but I mean, there was just a lot of, uh, a very strong Christian vibe, you know, throughout the whole thing, you know, and, and, uh, but just a group that was there to accept everyone there in terms of supporting them in their, um, in their cancer. And they were at different stages of the cancer. One thing Bill did share with me, son, is he said, you know, there were some men out there who were, who were gay. Okay. And, and, uh, and we talked about that. And, and last night, you know, we even talked about it further. In fact, I asked everyone, at the Bible study, son, I, I said, here, here's, a, here's a challenge for you I want you to think about. Picture yourself now being at that retreat, and, and Bill talked about how they had, like, you know, a campfire and everything, you know, sitting around the campfire, and some night having that campfire wind down where it's just you and just two people sitting there. And I said, picture it being, like, you know, co-ed, men and women there, but that you're sitting there, you know, as a man, you're sitting with a, a, a gay couple, two other men, or if you're a, a woman sitting there with um, two women, you know, lesbians. And I said, I want you to picture that. And picture that you've, you've started to establish a friendship, you know, with those individuals. Um, and, and that you know that God hasn't changed his view on that. But at the same time, you also know that, that many people who um, are living that life have felt judged by, by Christians or others, rightly or wrongly. I mean, certainly there've been some who've been very, um, you know, just very wrong in their approach and not loving and maybe even hateful. But, um, one thing Bill said is, is this one guy that he was talking to, uh, told him that, you know, you're not like any of the other Christians I've ever met. You know, they just tend to, you know, just shut, shut me down or, or, you know, want nothing to do with me or this or that. And so Bill was establishing a friendship. But, but, but I presented this challenge to the groups and I said, what would you say if, if you think about law and gospel, we talked about that last night, what would you say if now these new friends you're making said to you, Hey, you know, um, uh, you know, we really like you and we're having a great time here at the retreat, but we need to ask you something. You know, we, we've had Christians tell us, well, um, God's not going to let you into heaven because you're gay. And I said, if they presented you with that, and they said, well, 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 what do you say about that? You know? And, and so I put that challenge, or, you know, just that question out there to folks. And, and um, what, what, I, what I wanted, uh, and there were some, you know, very good responses to that. I, uh, I wanted people to think about how do you, um, through a friendship situation, when you have the opportunity then to, to speak the truth, how do you do so with, with wisdom and with love, um, without compromising what the Bible says, because in the Bible, you know, homosexual behavior is, is every bit as guilty as adultery. So, you know, I, I told the folks last night, I said, it's interesting to me 
that these so-called Christian churches um, that that say that homosexual behavior in a monogamous relationship is no longer sinful. It's interesting to me that they don't do that with adultery. They don't do that with gossip. They don't do that with lying. They don't, don't do that with stealing. You know, so I, you know, this is why many Christians at times will address that issue because it seems to be one of the few issues that so-called Christian churches that have so-called progressed beyond, you know, the traditional view, um, they, they want to say it's no longer a sin. And, but that's not what the Bible says. So anyway, long story short, um, and I won't go into all their answers, but, but Bill had a very, a very good response to that son on how he approached that with them uh, without compromising what the Bible says, but also in a way that they knew that, that he loved them. He wasn't judging them, but he was speaking the truth. Um, and, and whether they come to accept that or not, um, you know, it was, it was being done in love. And, you know, the Bible says better is open rebuke than hidden love. So that really goes to the heart of your question. You know, how do we individually apply um, law and gospel? And I would say this, do it in a friendship scenario, or let's say it's a family member. Um, do it within the context of somebody um, where you basically have earned the right to speak into their situation. Don't just, you know, go up to a stranger and start telling them, you know, about their sin. But, but if you've earned the right uh, and then do so with, with gentleness and respect, um, but you can be very direct. Um, and, and, and one final thought, I guess in that, in that situation there, if you've just met somebody at a retreat, I think you'd really want to be very, very careful how you address it. But if they, if they're asking you, um, then, then don't back down from presenting, um, you know, God's, God's plan for sexuality. Um, but obviously do so in a way that lets them know that you love them, that God loves them. But, uh, I, I like to, you know, couch that, 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 that whole thing, son, uh, in, in, in the broader, um, uh, sexual ethic, which is, you know, God's design is, is sex for a man and a woman in marriage. You know, I mean, people talk about homosexuality, but, but maybe what, maybe one, two, three percent or less, you know, of, of people who struggle with sexual sin, struggle with that. I mean, look at all the people who struggle with fornication, with adultery, with pornography. You know, so, I mean, that's a much bigger thing. And, and, and there's this sense that some people have that, you know, Christians are just against homosexuals and they always talk about that sin. So, I mean, I think if, if that situation presents itself and if people ask you for your view, um, or if you're in a relationship, a friendship where then you have an opportunity to speak the truth, you know, do so, do so carefully, do so lovingly, um, make sure you're not doing it in a, in a, in a judgmental way, meaning you're better than them. But, but at the same time, you don't have to water down, uh, the truth. You don't have to act as though, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, oh, well, well, one thing, you know, somebody said last night, Asan, they said, well, you know, they, they said that, you know, you, you could say to them that, you know, no, no sin is bigger than another sin. Um, and, and the only thing I would say with that is, yes, that's true. However, there are these so-called Christian churches that are performing same-sex marriages. Um, and, and biblically, that's no different than performing a marriage with your mistress, you know, you're, you're someone you're committing adultery with. Biblically, that's the same thing. Um, I mean, it, it's just as sinful. When I say the same thing, it's, I should say it's just as sinful. So, um, you know, to simply say, well, no, no one sin is bigger than another. You, you have to say a little bit more than that. 
Because otherwise, somebody's going to come away maybe, you know, you're right. I mean, I know I'm living in adultery. I know I'm living in homosexuality, uh, behave, homosexual behavior, but, but no sin is bigger than another. But you know, we know what sometimes that fails to, to address on the issue of repentance. So it, it, it's not the sin per se, but it's the attitude towards sin. You know, am I repentant? Am I sorry? And, and if I never knew that it was a sin, then I need somebody to tell me. Because even the prophet Nathan had to go to King David. David seemingly had forgot. You know, that adultery and murder was a sin. I mean, by his behavior, he seemed to forget. Um, but when he was confronted by Nathan the prophet, he came under conviction. Um, now he repented. He asked for forgiveness. He was forgiven. There were consequences to his sin. And, and sin often brings consequences, which, by the way, in my... Uh, instructions to this couple, uh, you know, pursuing the unbiblical divorce, I, I talked about, you know, the consequences that, uh, you know, and the discipline that, that, that God would bring to them uh, if they pursue this. And I said, I don't know what that discipline is, but, but I mean, God loves us too much not to discipline us when we charge ahead into a sin uh, that we know is a sin. Um, there will be discipline because God loves us. And, you know, is his child. He, he loves us. And, and you know, in, in, a, in a more extreme case, some people who are charging into sin, um, they're not even saved to begin with. Um, they don't come under any conviction of their sin. And, and, and one thing I will say about this couple is they both came under a conviction when they were presented with the law, when they were presented with the truth that they are pursuing an unbiblical divorce, they both repented of that. And what I mean is they to, you know, admit their own faults in, in the marriage and in the relationship and so on and so forth. So, so the law and the gospel both have their place. But if we give the gospel too soon, um, in a case where there's a lot, lack of repentance, we do much damage. On the other hand, if we withhold the gospel, and they're, you know, like Peter, when he denied the Lord three times, imagine, son, if when Peter went to the Lord after, you know, he, he got with the Lord after Christ's death and resurrection, imagine if the Lord had just beat him up. You know, I mean, you know, you know, uh, verbally. Imagine if the Lord had just berated him. You know, how dare you? You're one of my, you know, inner circle. You're going to do that. But instead, it was grace, you know, because Peter was sorry. He was already overwhelmed by, by his sin. So we have to assess who we're talking to and what is their attitude about their sin. And if their attitude is one of I'm pursuing it, then they need to hear the law. If their attitude is one is, I'm torn up over it, I, I just hate the fact that I did that, I want help, I want God's grace, hey, they need the gospel. So it really comes down to uh, following the Holy Spirit's lead uh, to see which medicine we apply in, in each situation, the law uh, and or the gospel. And I think that's the uh, you know best way, like you said, to look at it. How is the other person approach to it when you talk to them about it? Dan Delzell? Uh, author of the uh, article that we talked about today on the uh, ChristianPost.com, How to Properly Apply Law and Gospel. There's other articles on the ChristianPost.com, too. You can just Google search or uh, Internet search or just go to ChristianPost.com, and in the search bar, just put in the name Dan Delzell, D-E-L-Z-E-L-L, and the articles pop up. And, Dan, we appreciate your time and... um, and, and your uh, insights into these topics that we talk about, whether it's, you know, from the pop culture side or more of the theological side, it's always fun to have these conversations and kind of dig in and, and see where they lead. So we appreciate that. Well, it's always my pleasure, Son. Thank you for all you're doing uh, in, in this ministry to just uh, spread the word. And I'm just thankful to be able to 
come alongside and, and uh, offer a few thoughts uh, here with, with what you're doing. And, uh, and so thanks for another great topic. I look forward to next time. And uh, for those of you listening, you can check out our uh, website, RadioWarp.com. That's Radio W-A-R-P, RadioWarp.com. You can see the Sanctified Reason podcast logo. You can click on that, and all of our podcast um, episodes from previous shows pop up, and you can just scroll through and search them. We're also on uh, Podbean, or you can just do an Internet search of Sanctified Reason podcast, and uh, they pop up. Also, um, on YouTube as well, although it's just an audio version, but you do uh, have the ability to listen via YouTube. Just search Sanctified Reason Podcast on YouTube, and you'll be able to uh, hear them there. Our uh, show email, Sanctified Reason Podcast at gmail.com. That's Sanctified Reason Podcast at gmail.com. If you have any thoughts, questions, concerns, just uh, send us an email, and we will definitely respond. And for those of you listening, hey, thanks for listening. Do tell a friend. And until next time, God bless.